Friends, one of the questions that stumps most Christians is what or who is the Bible about? What or who is the Bible about? It's a simple question that differs on who, the answer differs on who you ask. Those who practice Judaism might say that the Bible is a story about Israel. It's a story about the relationship that God has with Israel. Others might say that the Bible is about telling us a story of specific people, such as Abraham, Moses, Joseph, David, etc. There's others that might say the Bible is about a historical past event, such as the creation of the world, the flood, or the exodus. There's so many different opinions on what the Bible is about. What is the main theme or story of the Bible? So friends, I ask you, once again, if one was to ask you, uh, what or who is the Bible about? And we don't need to look at various commentaries and various systematic theologies to see the answer. We find our answer in the Bible itself. John five forty six. Jesus says, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. And here's the answer. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. What Jesus is saying is you can go to the first five books of the Old Testament and see that the Bible is about Jesus Christ. The Bible is a story about Jesus Christ. It's a story about one person. Jesus Christ is the sum and substance of divine revelation. He is the central theme from Genesis to Revelation. All of the Bible points to and speaks of Jesus Christ. But one question that might arise in our minds is how is Jesus Christ seen in the Old Testament? How do we see Jesus Christ in the Old Testament? Where in the Old Testament is Jesus Christ presented? It's obvious we see him in the New Testament, but where can we go in the Old Testament? Well, one can turn to Genesis 3.15 where we see in seed form Jesus Christ being presented. He is that seed of the woman that will come and crush the serpent's head. One can turn to Genesis chapter 22, and we just finished speaking of those pass- of that great chapter where we learn from Pastor Antonio that Abraham sacrificing his son Isaac is ultimately about Jesus Christ. It ultimately pictures for us the love that the father has for his son, that the father would give to us his son, and the son would willingly sacrifice himself. But if one had to go to one book in the Old Testament to see Christ more clearly than anywhere else, without question, it's the prophecy of Isaiah. The message of the prophet of Isaiah is that the children of Israel have failed in their vocation to be God's holy servant. He's declaring that you have broken God's law. 
You are unfaithful to God. You are an unfaithful servant. And if the Lord's people are going to serve him in holiness, then they must be cleansed. They must trust in God alone. Isaiah gives us this message in summary form in chapters 1 through 6. Most of uh, Isaiah 1 through 39 emphasizes on the people's failure under good kings such as Hezekiah. But at points, Isaiah, uh, the prophet, foresees a restoration of Israel and Judah under one supreme king. Under God's, or under David's greater son, Jesus Christ. He foresees this rule and reign of the Messiah that's going to come. Isaiah chapter 40 through 66 focuses on the cleansing of God's people and that lay ahead in the prophet's day. What will happen to the nation of Israel? Ultimately, what will happen to God's people? What will happen to us? But tucked in between chapters 40 through 66, we have for us a gold mine. Tuck between chapters 40 through 66, we have for us four diamonds that shine more brightly than any other diamond in all of the Bible. We have set before us between chapters 40 through 66 some of the most vivid descriptions of our Lord Jesus Christ. These verses that speak of Christ are known as the servant songs of Isaiah. And they picture for us Not only the person of Christ, but also the work of Christ. Who is the Messiah that will come and restore the nation? But also, how will he do so? So what I want us to do this morning and for four Sunday mornings is I want us to consider the first servant song of Isaiah. And that is Isaiah chapter 42. If you have your Bibles You can turn to, or if you're already there, Isaiah, the prophecy of Isaiah, chapter 42. And if you are there, uh, please stand for the reading of God's word. Isaiah chapter 42. We will be be in the verses 1 through 4 this morning. The word of the Lord says this. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. You may be seated. This morning, saints, I have just two points that will help us consider this four glorious verses. The first point, who is the servant? And the second point, what is the servant's mission? The first point, who is the servant? And the second, what is the servant's mission? Four verses that we are to pay special attention to because they teach us not only about the person and work of Christ, but teach us how we are to live the Christian life. So let's begin with the first point. Who is the servant? As we open the 42nd chapter of Isaiah, the reader's attention is 
immediately grabbed. A voice is speaking. And he's demanding that we pay attention to what he's about to say. It's almost as if you're at a wedding. And as if the bride or, the, the, or someone that's close to the family stands up and on, holding in their left hand a cup and in their right hand they're holding a fork and they're trying to get everyone's attention. They want everyone to hear what they are about to say. They're trying to grab everyone's attention and they want everyone to focus on them. That's what's happening in the beginning of verses or chapter 42. God is demanding that we uh, pay attention to what he's saying. And it's God the Father that's speaking throughout this entire chapter. And the way he grabs our attention in the opening of this chapter is simply with one word. Behold. We don't hear of loud thunder. We don't hear of any noise happening. But we just hear one word. Behold, God is calling our attention towards someone. He's calling us to set our eyes and focus, not primarily, although we are to, we ought to, focus on what he has to say, but he's setting our eyes on a person. Look at this person. Now, who is this person that God wants us to see? We read in verse 1, the Lord says, Behold, my servant. Behold, my servant. If you have your Bibles, um, you see that in verse 1. That this servant is a unique fellow. He's not just any servant. He's not just some random servant that God has just randomly chosen. But rather, he's God's servant. He is the servant of the Lord. And anytime we hear of that title, servant of the Lord, we know that as None other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the servant of the Lord. It is the Father who says of his Son, Behold. The Father is wanting us to focus in on his Son. Behold, my servant. And there's four things, four features we learn about this servant just based on verse 1. There's four ways in which the person of Christ, the person of the servant, is highlighted. So number one, the servant is chosen. The servant is chosen. The first feature we know about this servant is he's, is a, he's a chosen servant. Look at verse one again, if you will. Behold my servant whom I uphold. And the rest of the verse says, my chosen Saints, when we consider the fall of Adam in the garden, it's of great error, borderline heresy to think that what happened in the garden took God by surprise. When we consider the moment when Adam sinned, it's of great error, borderline heresy to think that when Adam sinned, the moment Adam sinned, God in heaven was scrambling around trying to figure out how he's going to undo what Adam had done. When we consider our salvation, specifically the plan of salvation, it's of great error to believe that the moment Adam sinned, God planned our salvation. 
Adam's fall, saints, did not catch God off guard. Nor did the plan of salvation begin the moment Adam fell. But rather, God's plan to save us began long ago. Before God said, let there be light. Before God, uh, before the foundations of the world. Before God called his creation good. Before Adam and Eve, there was an agreement that was made. There was a plan that was established between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Where the Father chose the Son to be a head. To be the Savior of a specific people group. And the Spirit would empower the Son in His mediatorial office. It is the eternal Son who was chosen by the Father to be our prophet, priest, and king. It was the eternal Son who was chosen by the Father to be our mediator, to stand between God and man. It was the second person of the Trinity that this was granted to. It was the eternal Son who was chosen to bear on his body the scars and piercings of our sin. But we have to ask, saints, and it's a very scholastic question to ask. Maybe you've never asked it before, but why was the Son chosen? Why was the second person of the Trinity chosen? Why wasn't the Father chosen? Why wasn't the Spirit chosen? Why did the Son become incarnate? Why did the Son take on human flesh? Why not the Father? Why not the Spirit? And friends, I have to admit that this is a very deep question that we could spend the rest of the sermon unpacking. But in a nutshell... The son was chosen, and hear me now and stay with me. The son was chosen because of who he is. The son was chosen because of who he is. Jesus Christ is the eternal son of God. He is the natural son of the father. You are adopted sons by grace, but the eternal son is the natural son of the father. The the father in eternity past. Eternally generates the Son. The Son comes from the Father. So it's fitting that the one who comes from the Father in eternity past will be the one who comes from the woman in time and space. The one who was the Son by nature could only make us adopted sons by grace. The one who is in between the Father and the Spirit should be the mediator between God and man. It is the eternal son who was chosen to do this work of salvation. Now we aren't to think that when the father chose the son, that the son was saying, no, you do it, father, or you go and save our people's spirits, but rather the son willingly and freely accepted to be our mediator. It was, yes, the will of the father, but... The mystery of it all is it was also the will of the Son. Yes, the Father chose the Son, but we aren't to think that the Father chose the Son apart from the Son choosing Himself. And apart from the Spirit choosing the Son. But in addition to the servant being chosen, we also see that He's loved. He's a loved servant. And that's the second feature we learn about the servant. The servant is loved. The Father says in verse 1 that the servant is 
whom my soul delights. Maybe if you read that in your, in your scriptures, the father says, this one, this servant is whom my soul delights. The father loves and great takes great delight in his son. And saints, this fact is highlighted in the life and ministry of our Lord, is it not? At Christ's baptism, the heavens open up and the father declares his delight for his son. He says that this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Christ on many occasions speaks of the love that the father has for the son. In John ten seventeen. he says, for this reason, the father loves me. Because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. In John 5.20 and in John 3.35, he begins with the same words. The Father loves the Son. If there's anything that Christ knew for certain, it was that his Father loved him. It was that his Father took great delight in him. And friends, we have to pause at this moment because whether you are the greatest scholar in this world Christian scholar, or whether you are just barely new to the faith. This truth here is so vital for us to know and to be reminded of that Christ is not only beloved by his father, but he's also accepted by his father. And what that means for us, saints, is that favor and acceptance with God is only found in Jesus Christ. It is only in Christ that we are loved and accepted by God. There is no work from us that is pleasing in God's sight. As the prophet Isaiah says in chapter 64, 6, all righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. And if you were here last week, last Sunday morning, you saw that vivid imagery of what a polluted, what a filthy garment looks like. That's what we bring to the table. That's what God thinks of our works. And saints, the message of the Bible is clear. It couldn't be any clearer than what the Bible says is that if you want to be pleasing in God's sight, then you must be in union with the one whom he is pleased with. Only in Christ, the beloved one, we are beloved by God. It is only in Christ and him alone. Jesus is loved by his father. The father takes great delight in his son. The third thing we learn about this servant is he's anointed. This is the third feature, that the servant is anointed. It is the father who says in verse 1 that he will uphold the son, which means that the Lord will not act independently in his life, that the Lord will not be a lone ranger, but he will be upheld throughout his entire life and ministry. But how will the father uphold his son? Look at verse 1 if you would. I have put my spirit upon him. And as we come to the New Testament, we see at Christ's baptism, the spirit descends upon the person of Jesus Christ according to his human nature. It was the spirit at Christ's baptism where he's divinely equipped to be our savior, to be our redeemer, redeemer, to be our mediator. And throughout the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, we see that the closest companion to Jesus Christ was the Holy Spirit that indwelt within him. The one that was closest to Jesus Christ was the spirit that lived inside of him. 
It was by the Spirit that Christ grew in favor with God and man. It was by the Spirit that he preached with authority and accuracy. It was by the Spirit that he performed miracles. And as his friends abandoned him, as his own people rejected him, it was the Spirit that comforted him. Every second of every moment of Christ's life, it was the Spirit that was upholding him. Jesus Christ leaned on the Spirit. Now what that means for us saints is that Jesus Christ did not come into this world as a private man. He did not come as a lone ranger. He did not come as the captain of his own ship. In other words, his life wasn't his own. It was God's life. He depended upon his father, but also the spirit that his father indwelt him with. He did not speak on his own authority. He spoke the words of his father. He did not operate according to his own power, but rather he did so in the power of the Holy Spirit. And this, saints, is so glorious for us to know because Jesus Christ, he's so unlike his counterpart, Adam, is he not? What did Adam do in the garden ultimately? He forfeited his rights. He forfeited that hand that used to lead him every single day. He no longer wanted to follow God, but rather he wanted to be God himself. He no longer wanted to depend upon God. He no longer wanted to depend upon God's word, on the goodness of God, on the providence of God, on the grace of God. But rather, he wanted to be God himself. What we learn from this greater Adam is that he is greater in this respect, that he did not forfeit. He did not uh, stop clinging to the hand of God. But every single day, he followed God. Every single day, he depended upon his father and the spirit that indwelt within him. And the last feature we learn about the servant is that he's a servant. Now, this should be the most obvious of the four features or the four things we learn about Jesus Christ. But, saints, I don't know about you, but this is the most glorious, is it not? I mean, think about it, friends. The King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one who was eternally generated from the Father... The one who is very God of very God, who upholds the entire universe, who upholds your life, became a servant. God became a servant. He says of himself in Matthew 20, 28, that he came not to be served, but to serve. In Luke chapter 22, his disciples argued over who is the greatest. Jesus tells them, Let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table, but I am among you as one who serves? Jesus here identifies himself with us. Adam was a servant and son of God. Israel was a servant and son of God. And here we have the typological, the last, the final, the ultimate son, servant of God, saying that I have come to do what Adam and Israel failed to do. 
I have come to serve. Who is the greatest? Friends, that's a question that the world asks, is it not? That's a question that the world is so consumed by. The world seeks to be known, but what Christ is saying, and hear me now, what Christ is saying is that the greatest somebodies on earth are the greatest nobodies on earth. And friends, isn't that true of our Lord? That he was the greatest somebody who ever lived. But he says to us, but I am among you as one who serves. The greatest of the great becomes the lowliest of the low. Jesus Christ in his life didn't come demanding that people cater to his every need. But rather, he put the interests of others before his very own. Jesus Christ is not just God's servant, but the glorious mystery of all of this is this. He's our servant. Jesus Christ is the church's servant. In the words of Ian Hamilton, Jesus Christ is the great deacon of the church. He is our servant. And saints, isn't that the wonder of all Christian truths? Doesn't that baffle your mind when you think about this truth? That though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. Jesus Christ didn't just come in the likeness of sinful flesh. He didn't just merely take on flesh, but he went beyond. He became as a servant. I don't know about you, saints. I don't know if you've gotten tired of hearing of this truth. But every time I read Philippians chapter 2, I'm always brought down to my knees. And the reason why is because no king, no superhero will ever stoop down to this level. None of you would stoop down to this level. If all of you suddenly became millionaires, for one, we probably wouldn't see you again. But for two, none of you would live the way that you lived. You would live lavishly. Your clothes would be different. The the way that you talk would be different. But friends, what we learn about Jesus Christ is the one who was blessed eternal. The one who was in and of himself has all life, all glory. Becomes a servant. He sat and conversed with sinners. He healed the sick. He washed his disciples' feet. But also, he unloosened the sandals from his disciples. One of the lowliest things that one could do. Even slaves, it was too low for slaves to do. And friends, what we learn from the life of Christ is this. That greatness has nothing to do with status, but has everything to do with service. Hear me now, greatness has nothing to do with status, but has everything to do with service. Greatness lies in not who you are, but how have you served? This is the one thing, and if I could for a second brag and boast about my mother, this is the one thing that I appreciate so much about my mother. Is this one thing that we know, or if you've been around her, there's one thing that you know about my mother is that she never does anything for herself. But she's always looking out for others. Oftentimes, we, as her children, have to tell her. We give her money. Now, go do this for yourself. Go somewhere. Go shop somewhere. Go do something. Go put gas in your car something. Do something for yourself. But she's always giving back. She has a servant's heart. 
Because she's modeling her life after the great servant, Jesus Christ. And saints, that's what we are to do as well. We are to live a servant-filled, a servanthood life. And what we have learned from Jesus Christ in verse 1 is that Jesus Christ is God's beloved, chosen, and anointed servant. Now let's consider the servant's mission. The servant's mission. After we have seen the various features of the servant, we have to ask three questions. Now, these three questions are really questions that uh, the text commands us or, or demands us to ask. The first question is, what is the mission of the servant? What is the mission of the servant? Number two, how will he accomplish his mission? And number three, will he succeed in his mission? What is the mission of the servant? How will he accomplish his mission? And will he succeed in his mission? Let's answer the first question quickly. What is the mission of the servant? We find our answer at the end of verse 1. He will bring forth justice to the nations. What was the servant's mission? What did the servant come to do? He came to bring forth justice to the nations. Now, saints, that doesn't mean that Christ came to judge. But rather, what it means is Christ came to save. He came to save those who were lost. The servant will come and bring forth truth. And he will establish righteousness, not just to Israel. But he will bring truth and righteousness to every tongue, tribe, and nation. Jesus Christ's mission was first and foremost to preach the gospel. Did Jesus Christ ever preach the gospel? course he was the greatest gospel preacher that ever lived he told men of their need of repentance in john 8 24 for unless you believe that i am he you will die in your sins he told men that salvation is only found in him in john 14 6 i am the way and the truth of the life no one comes to the father except through me he told men the cost of following christ was weighty he said in Matthew 8, 20, the foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He gave others the full account of the gospel. Jesus preached the gospel. And what he preached, or rather the way he preached the gospel, was by pointing to the very content of the gospel himself. He pointed to himself. The gospel is not merely words. The gospel is Jesus Christ. He is the gospel. From start to finish, it's all about Jesus Christ. He is the very diamond of the gospel. He is whom we believe. We don't believe in the gospel, saints. We believe in the, the Christ of the gospel, the Savior of the gospel. We don't believe in words. We believe in a person. We believe in Jesus Christ. Christ truly was the light of the world. And his mission was to shine that gospel light in every part, every dark area. Because we know that the world that Christ entered was a sin-sick world. It was a cold world. The servant's mission was to serve by preaching truth. But we have to ask, how will he accomplish his mission? His mission was to preach truth, was to preach the gospel, but... How will he accomplish his mission? In other words, in what manner would justice be established? Look at verse 2, if you would. 
He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. Jesus Christ was a humble servant. He would not make his way by loud, overwhelming talk. He would not be aggressive in his speech. He would not yell at people. But rather, he will make his way by the Spirit of God that's upon him. In other words, Christ will not kill others by his words. His tongue will not be a starter of fires. The servant will not advertise himself. He will not say, come and look at me. But he will be gentle with his words. And saints, what we take away from the life of our Lord, a life of gentle speech, a life of kind speech, is that the way you speak the truth is just as important as the truth you speak. My wife has to remind me of this every single day. I often tell her, well, what I said was true, right? Yes, but the way you said it made it so ugly and made it so false. The way you speak the truth is as important as the truth you speak. And we see that even though Jesus Christ spoke and only spoke truth, it was always in love. He was always patient. He was always gentle. Our servant was lowly in heart, in his words, but also in action. And saints, in verse 3, we have for us a beautiful picture of how gentle, how sweet, how kind the servant truly is. Look at verse 3 if you would. It's probably the most, some of the most greatest words in all of the Bible. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. Every time I read that, I must be brought down to my knees. In fact, in all of the Bible saints, it would be hard to find better words that encapsulate how Jesus Christ dealt with people. A breed is a fairly fragile plant already. It doesn't take much for a reed to be crushed when it's out in the field. And here we have an image of a reed that is bruised. Here we have an image of a reed that's on the verge of completely being broken. A reed that others would just toss out. But these are the bruised reeds that Christ comes for. These are the bruised reeds that Christ upholds. The servant will deal gently with the bruised reed. He will sustain the bruised reed and he will heal its broken stems. And to further expand the imagery in verse 3 also says a faintly burning wick he will not quench. If you ever lit in a candle, you know that when it gets to its very end, the flame, the light starts to fade away. We know that when that light starts to fade away at a candle, that any gust of wind can blow the candle out. It doesn't take much. And here we see that this candle is barely holding on for dear life. It's barely holding on to its flame. But it's these broken candles. It's these holding on for life wicks that are the ones that the servant is gentle towards. It's those faintly burning wicks that Christ helps inflamed. 
And saints, I don't know about you, but every time I read this verse here, I can't help but think about my own story, who I am in Adam. I stand before you as a bruised reed. I stand before you as a faintly burning wick. This is my story. This is who I am. Left to myself, at any moment, my stems can be crushed and my light can be blown out at any moment. But Christ will not have it so. That's me, but what about you, saints? Many of you, I'm sure, are just one trial away from giving up. You're just one job interview away from just completely giving up on church and moving off to another state and being completely done with church. You're, many of you who are single are one husband away, one boyfriend away, one wife away from completely giving up on total dependence on God. You're one paycheck away from moving to the coast and doing all that you dreamt of doing. Many of you have come to church this morning, I'm sure, barely making it. Many of you are tired. I can see in your eyes. I'm barely making it. All of us are barely making it. Many of us wonder, I often wonder, how long can I remain faithful to God in His Word? How long can I be faithful to God, God's people? But in light of all of those questions, you're still here this morning. You still chose to go in your car and sit down for an hour, two hours and sing songs, hear the word preached, fellowship with others. And you have to ask when you look back at your past life that you're no different than those other bruised reeds that you've associated with. You're no different than those faintly burning wicks that you have associated with. I think about my brother, our pastor. He's no different than all the others who have had a car crash in their life. I'm more di- no different than one whose child has been in the NICU. I'm no different than anyone. Why hasn't my lights been blown out? And why haven't I been crushed? Saints, I don't have all the answers in the world, but... The one answer I keep coming back to is because Christ is holding me together. You want to know why your stem has not been completely broken? Why the oil stays under your faintly burning wick? It's because Jesus Christ is holding you together. The one who upholds the entire universe upholds little old you. And he will sustain you. And lastly... Will the servant accomplish his mission? Will he accomplish his mission? Let's together consider the last verse, verse 4. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. If anyone had every reason to be discouraged in his life and ministry, it surely was Jesus Christ. In his life, his closest friends abandoned him. His own people wanted to kill him. Even on the cross in his darkest hour when he felt that his father abandoned him. As James Campbell has said, 
the anchor chain of his faith did not snap. When all seemed dark, the anchor chain of his faith did not snap. Our Lord's faith never wavered. Not once did Christ get discouraged. Not once did he second guess his father's will. Christ never doubted if his mission was going to be successful or not. He never grew faint in heart. But as the writer of the book of Hebrews tells us in chapter 12, verse 2, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Would Christ accomplish his mission? Of course. He knew every single person whom he was dying for because it was written, they were written on his heart. In closing, saints, there's so much application that we can receive from this text. It's almost as if we can do another sermon on just application alone. But what I will say is this, is that the Christian life is to be a Christ-like life. Jesus Christ is the prototypical Christian. And we are to model our life, our low life, our sinful life, after the great life of Jesus Christ. My heart has been so exposed while preparing this sermon and meditating on this text. And saints, I ask you the same question and I leave you with the same questions that I asked myself while preparing. Am I depending upon the Holy Spirit in all that I do? Is my hand connected with God's hand in every single area of my life? Am I depending upon the Spirit? Am I gentle with my words? Am I patient with my words? Or am I lifting up my voice and killing others with my speech? Am I desiring to be known by others? Am I seeking a status that can be so I can be seen as great, so I can be seen as worthy? Or am I a servant? Have I truly put on the mind of Christ? Am I a reed breaker and a fire quencher? Do I go around breaking others who already bruise reeds and blowing out others who are already faintly burning wicks? Friends, the great news of the gospel and the great news of this sermon is this, is that Jesus Christ didn't ask any of those questions to himself. He was perfect, holy in all that he did. So saints, we have to ask ourselves, what are we to do when we fall short? What do you do, saint, when you fail? What do you do when you sit in darkness? Well, we are to do the same thing that we were exhorted to do in the beginning of verse 1. We are to behold the servant. Saints, if you've come here as a bruised reed, if you've come here as a faintly burning wick, the only application I could give you is this. Set your eyes on Jesus and him alone. Let's pray.